Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way. My name is Jeff. Um, it's good to see everybody here tonight. We're going to uh, play a song to gather us as you get your seats. Uh, it's a song I wrote a couple of years ago based on Psalm 27 and a little bit of 25. And it's called Hear My Voice. Jeff, Brett, and Casey, three of our regulars. <laughs> Welcome to Emmaus Way. My name's Ben. Glad you're here on, again, my, my weekly commentary on the weather continues with another unseasonably warm winter Sunday. Um, glad you're here. Emmaus Way, we like to call ourselves a community that's captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's, we're, we're here to live into that story tonight um, in our gathered worship and imagine ways to do that um, in each other's lives and throughout the week. 
Um, one, we're also in the, is it the third week of Lent? Yes, the third Sunday of Lent. And so in keeping with that, our community element that our kids are leading us in is a prayer for Lent. Joel, are you going to be our leader on this again? All right. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Thank you, Joel and kids. So, a little more about Emmaus Way if you're relatively new to us. Um, lots of great ways to connect with this community all, all through the week and a lot, of, a lot of interesting opportunities there. You can volunteer with our kids if you haven't done that. It sounds like a lot of fun, right? We have a variety of volunteer rotations that happen on Sunday and sort of keep this community running. Um, we also have um, some missional partnerships that we're engaged in that, that people can be involved in through the week, working missionally. Um, and you can find out about all that stuff. Uh, there's a green card out there that has some staff contacts, has some of those um, opportunities listed on it, directed to our website where you can find more. Also a yellow card that you could fill out if you wanted to get on any of our community listservs. that will go out weekly and tell you about stuff that's happening. Um, yeah, there's also a dinner group that goes every night. Elizabeth Cobb is sort of the check-in on that tonight, and she's, you're going to Elmo's, is that right? Yeah, we're going to Elmo's. Um, in the past weeks, so if you're aiming for like 7.15 tonight, we're going to try more like 7 because we've consistently been earlier than that. So um, that's the plan. If you'd like to come, love to have you. Uh, let's see. Anything else? Dinner group? I have other stuff, but I don't, I don't want to do Okay, I'll just move on to the announcement portion and say um, we've in the middle of Lent, we've taken on this sort of big community-wide project. Um, we're calling it a contemplative Lent. Um, involves both things that you're going to see here tonight um, in our gathered worship, but also all sorts of opportunities through the week. And I'm going to give it to Molly, who's going to tell us about that. Yeah, so this week, there are two contemplative Lent, uh, Lenten opportunities. Um, one is on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. It will be held at Elizabeth. Um, and Josh Schneider's house, um, and SK will be there leading folks in imaginative prayer. Um, if you've never experienced imaginative prayer, um, it really transformed my prayer life at a time when I really wasn't, like, I just didn't really care about prayer. Um, so it's a really neat, moving, um, contemplative um, opportunity that I hope you all will attend. And then on Saturday, from 10 until 11, the foxes um, will be at the Rukba house walking their labyrinth, and so you're invited to come walk the labyrinth, um, and then if you are able, if you want to stick around at 11 o'clock, they will go um, grab a bite to eat downtown, um, so please join them with that. If you're thinking you want to eat, they ask that you get to the labyrinth by 1045, 
Do you have enough time to walk it? Labyrinths take longer to walk than what you first think. <laughs> so come to that Saturday morning if you would like. And all of the addresses and information is on the calendar that's on the table. Thanks, Molly. Molly, great job putting that together. Those things have been happening in the community, and so yeah, it's the great diversity of opportunities. Check those out. There's a whole Google Calendar on the website too that runs them down. Um, anything else announcement-wise? I didn't get anything from. That I'm missing. So, well, in that contemplative vein, we've sort of been uh, opening up the contemplative Lent, but this will really be kind of our first Sunday gathering that's really built heavily around that theme, um, and so I think we scored a win with a Jeff Crawford week to open us up on that as we're talking about the, the idea of intimacy of God or communing with God. Like, I'm not sure any one of our artists that's more focused on that theme, self-admittedly, in fact, than, than Jeff. So he's put together, I think, some great songs that, that deal with that, yeah, that sense of, like, trying to commune with God and how that draws us out into the world or into ourselves in, in different ways. Jeff, come and lead us, please. Contemplative. <laughs> this is probably my favorite hymn. Um, I like how honest it is about grief. Um, don't find that as much in the language that you can understand in songs from that period I love Sibelius too yeah these songs are, uh, are, are meditations it's been said in some cases of them. Be still my soul The Lord is on your side Bear patiently The cross of grief Your hope, your comfort. 
Thanks, guys. Jeff, those were excellent texts for our conversation today. I do appreciate that a bunch. 
It's good to see everybody here uh, today, and I want to give you a moment to stand and greet each other. If you're around somebody that you don't know, feel free to introduce yourself and uh, offer each other the peace of Christ, and I'll give us a shout in a moment or two, and we will jump into the dialogue tonight. So please stand and greet each other. So one more little plug. Uh, Ben did not mention this. in terms of life at Emmaus Way, but one of the things that's been really fun these last several weeks is um, we have had a pub group for about 10 years. Uh, It's met at different locations. Right now we're meeting at the Federal on Thursday nights at 8.15, and Ben has been doing a phenomenal job with readings. Right now we're working through the autobiography of Dorothy Day. Uh, We're about about halfway through now, you think? So if you're interested in joining us, please, it's a come-and-go type of group. But also, if you're interested in just getting the reading for the week, you can, you can contact Ben and get on that list. Uh, so anyway, that's another thing that happens in our life. Um, so as, um, as we've mentioned many times, uh, Molly's done an incredible job of kind of crafting this contemplative Lenten experience for us. And one of the things that we uh, did very intentionally um, is that this Lenten uh, six weeks of contemplation followed a four or five weeks where we focused specifically on justice in a wide range of kind of, th- of a theological lexicon of old ancient theological ideas that are crafted into a rich view of, of justice. And for us, one of the things that was absolutely critical about doing contemplation and, ju- and, and justice juxtaposed like that was the realization that these are not um, different moves within the faith, but works of justice and works of contemplation are highly related to each other. And so we've been trying to kind of draw that line together. And tonight, I hope, will be another effort when we do that. Um, And tonight, we're going to look at a text. It's a psalm uh, uh, that is one that is uh, uh, well known for its Uh, words written, crafted, and used during times of duress. So this is Psalm 63. It's on your handout. We're doing the first eight verses tonight. Uh, And and it's interesting. Uh, One of the things I thought I was going to do tonight, and I I ended up not doing this, but I read a lot this week about the history of mysticism within Christianity. And And there's many, many critiques, even though the mystical tradition begins at the very beginning of Christianity and is related highly to apocalyptic Judaism and many other strands of Judaism. This is not something that someone invented in the 60s and thought was a really good Good idea, but one of the most common critiques about mysticism and the contemplative side of Christianity is that it removes people from their social context, that it separates them from life. And the focus is on one's soul, one's life, one's being detached entirely from the social fabric of the life around us. Now, interestingly, I don't think that's the biblical witness at all on this, in the sense that if you read the Gospels, Jesus' move in into the wilderness or into uh, solitude or into quietness always seems to be related to a moment and always part of his response to that moment. But nonetheless, that's the critique of the contemplative part of Christianity is that it separates us from the social world that we're in. Um, But I think we'll see a text tonight that again refutes that idea. Um, Now, Psalm 63 is known pretty particularly as a psalm that was written in the wilderness 
by David while he is fly, fleeing from the king, uh, Saul, who was once a friend uh, but now pursues his life. If you know the backstory, David has been selected, uh, though he's not obviously a son of Saul, as the next king of Israel. And Saul has threatened his life. And if you can imagine, if you've ever experienced something that you thought a threat, when you received a threat from someone, there's probably no greater threat that one can receive than from the head of a state. And so that is the experience that uh, David has when he writes uh, this psalm. Uh, one other little bit of backdrop on this is that biblical scholars tend to make reference to Psalm 63 along with 5, 17, 27, 30, 57, 143, a few others as psalms of vigil. They are psalms that are, uh, are uh, literally someone keeping watch during the night imagining uh, solace, uh, rescue, reprieve, something good happening at daybreak. Uh, Elizabeth, you mentioned this in a phone call. I think we were talking last week, and you made reference to the Lord of the Rings and Rohan in the middle of Helm's Deep waiting for daybreak. And that in some way, if, if, you're, if you're a Lord of the Rings person like I am, uh, uh, you would know that image. And this is the image that has crafted uh, the, the writing of these psalms, hoping for rescue at the break of day. So this is a psalm where circumstances are dire. Um, In fact, if you look at the circumstances, there are really no rational hopes for rescue other than a profound intervention by Yahweh. So that's David as he writes this psalm. Somebody read those first eight verses for me, and then we'll talk for a few moments, let you kind of offer your own kind of interpretation to this. So somebody read uh, one through eight. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call you upon your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich peace. And my mouth praises you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed, I meditate on the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, my right hand holds me. Your right hand holds me. Thanks, Tyson. So the context of this jumps right out in the words, uh, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, um, I meditate on you and the watches of the night. So in some ways, the, the framing of this is pretty easy to get out of the text. But what are your thoughts about two things here? Comment a bit about the emotions of this psalm. Let's take that first. Uh, look at the psalm and what are the emotions that kind of fill the words in this space here? Maybe the best way to say that is what's the range of emotions that you see here? It kind of starts with a desperation. Okay, yeah, there's ab- there is that kind of absolute desperation. I'm in a I'm in I'm in my last bit of life here, for sure. And the emotions associated with that. Other things you see here. And then it ranges to satisfaction. You know, that's pretty wide. 
Yeah, isn't it interesting that this psalm goes from utter dire screaming to images of satisfaction and fulfillment? For sure, we'll need to deal with that a bit. Other things you might see here. Food on the brain. Yeah, yeah. For sure, we need to come back to that. There's definitely food on the brain here. If the poles are are desperation and satisfaction, like the the final verse we have here, my soul clings to you, right? It kind of sits between those two. There's this perpetual tension between those two poles. Yeah, so fear remains throughout the reading of this. Yeah, exactly. He actually says he sings for joy. So again, we've got fear, we've got joy, we've got satisfaction, we've got desperation. Has anybody, does anybody have like a visceral connection to this psalm? Because you've read it at a certain portion of your life or uh, it's meant something to you? We used to sing a song based on this psalm in the church. I would imagine this is a song provoker. I know you guys know I've mentioned this many times. Um, when I was a freshman in college, my uh, mom uh, had cancer and died the next year. Uh, very kind of rapid metastasizing uh, breast cancer. And this was her favorite psalm. It's a psalm that you could imagine someone uh, reading and clinging to in the midst of imminent death. And for her, the processing of death and, and was, was, was unique because in some ways she clung incredibly strongly to life. The sense that rescue would come uh, despite the state of the research at that point in time. And then, uh, and, and then this deep, deep, deep kind of faith in the life beyond. And, and when, when you would speak to her, uh, she might be in either of those two modes responding. But often I remember, and in fact, I've looked back to things that she kind of gave me during that year. And this is a psalm that came up two or three times that was underlined and written out. And, and, and so this might be the type of text that you would read at your worst moment, the moment when you can't really see what the next thing is. Now, given the range of emotions that you guys have pointed out and that are far-ranging, what do you think is the theological message of this psalm? And note that I'm not asking you whether you would embrace that message, but what do you think is the, the theological message of this psalm? Well, the word said steadfast love, maybe you guys have talked about this already, but the word steadfast love, chesed, means covenant, um, means like a devotion to the covenant that God made with his people. Um, so to me, it seems like this song is about God's faithfulness to his people and how satisfying that is. I mean, that's kind of obvious. Well, to some degree, David is representing his own personal life uh, and letting that conflate to God's relationship to these people that, that are called God's people. So, yeah, and it's a, it's a, in, in some ways, some might be saying that, that, that God's relationship, faithful relationship to that people is something that's assured. And somebody might say that's the message here. What else would you say? 
that God meets people in this tension between in personal insecurity with some form of hope and some form of something that transcends immediate troubles? Yeah, that might be a strong promise here of the presence of God in this circumstance. Now, that's where it gets complicated, doesn't it? But, but that seems to be something that, that is affirmed here. Yeah, other things you might see theologically here. There's a real intimacy here. I mean, you know, when, when the psalmist says, when I think of you on my bed and meditate you in the watches, meditate on you in the watches of the night, like there, there's a real intimacy with God in, in this framing, in this poem. Yeah, I mean, if, you were to, if we were to list the most intimate things in life, food, sex, shelter, fear, uh, insecurity, many of those are present in this psalm. And, and the language is deeply intimate. Yeah. I want you to notice just a, a, a transition that happens in this psalm. Now, imagine yourself, you're writing this, and you're in the desert, fleeing for your life. I mean, let's imagine, what, what would be someone in that circumstance? What would they experience? Hunger. Cold. Um, you know, they might be able to, especially that part of the world and that time of, of, of our calendar, you know, the history, um, they may hear animals at night that are fearsome. That was written about many, many times in the poetry and the scriptures of that time. Uh, they are fearing a, uh, uh, an army, a king. That's, I mean, there's all of these things that are allayed against David. And notice, isn't it interesting? The things that he might be experiencing, hunger, thirst, fear. Um, notice the theological dance that goes on about those concepts. He talks about the longing for water or thirst, and desperation for food, almost a state of delirium, but then he talks about being satisfied as with a rich feast. The experience of the writer is not his hunger and his thirst, but his satisfaction. And for somebody who's inevitably sleeping on the ground in uh, like the harshest of conditions, uh, he writes as if he is uh, thinking of you on my bed. Uh, you get the sense of, of lying in some comfortable bower, not not on the ground. Uh, and and instead of mortal danger and intense vulnerability, he talks about being in the shadow of Yahweh's wings. So in some ways, there's this theological move between dire circumstances and the experience of a great feast, of flowing water, uh, a comfortable bed, and the deep presence of God. Now, this raises some interesting questions for us, right? I mean, um, in some ways, we might look at this as a trivialization of, of pain. Uh, you know, just think about God and your woes will go away. Uh, um, and, and I, but though I would suggest, as I said earlier, that this idea of the contemplative life is not one that takes us away from the most difficult conditions of life, 
uh, but in some way inhabits our soul during those moments. But you would certainly be right to say that you might catch a wind of this. Is how many times has religion been used to manipulate people who are being uh, uh, manipulated, violated, overwhelmed? Just think about heaven. Think about the, the good that comes. Think about God. Don't think about who's screwing you right now. That has certainly been one of the many uses of religion in our history, but this to me, to some degree, doesn't seem to be that type of text. In some way, as you guys have pointed out, David seems to be very, very, very clear about the dire situations that he's in, but somehow uses theological language of of solace in this. He sees something that's possible, and to some degree, this is kind of the quest that Molly has set up for us during Lent, is how do we experience the love of God? How do we experience the anguish and inequity of the world that we live in at the same time, yet somehow find ourselves still being deeply loved by God and, and finding ourselves motivated to work for the kingdom that we talk about so often. So there's something here about this text that, that, that I think encourages us in that way. Now, what I thought I would do today was just take a few moments today and do a little bit of an exemplar of someone who would have far more powerfully agreed with me about that idea that prayer and contemplation and the naming of our circumstances and the presence of God in no way nullifies the pain of those circumstances, but in some way gives us a response to that. Um, Molly pointed out Henry Nowen is somebody who who wrote very openly about this. Um, But today I wanted to just take a few moments and jump into the corpus of Howard Thurman. How many of you guys have read Howard Thurman? Anybody know who Howard Thurman is? Uh, One of his most famous books is uh, Jesus and the Disinherited. Um, But just here's the quick background of Thurman. He was a really, really poor grandson of slaves growing up in Florida. Um, His kind of academic and pastoral resume includes uh, several things. One, dean of the chapel at Howard University. Um, He founded largely the, the the first and most significant interdenominational, interfaith, interracial church in San Francisco in the 40s. So this is the 40s, right, post-war San Francisco. He was called from that position to be uh, dean of the chapel at Boston University, and he was the first uh, African-American dean uh, dean of a chapel for any major white university in America. Uh, His readings and writings were uh, deeply influential to the civil rights movement. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, was reputed to be holding Jesus and the disinherited in hand as he marched at Selma. But one of the great critiques that Thurman faced as a contemplative and as a poet and as one whose preaching sounded a lot like Psalm 63 and less like letters from the Birmingham jail was that the critique was that he was somebody who avoided the political, racial situation of the world, even though many people who were leaders in that movement often affirmed that he was a significant mentor to them. But his writings are are significant. Uh, Let me tell you just a few things about this, and then I'll set up a meditation that I I want to do today. So he he worked as a child 
Um, but as an eighth grader in Jacksonville, he had an opportunity to go to, um, which was more educated than any of the kids in his neighborhood at that point, but he was offered an opportunity to go to a black private school. Um, and so he went to, uh, his family, his grandmother, I think, bought him a bus ticket to go to, uh, to, to school. I think it was in Daytona. And um, he got to the bus station, and he had his ticket. He had no money. Uh, and, uh, and he was missing something that he really needed to do. His, his bag was too big to put on the bus, so it needed to be shipped and he had no money, obviously, to ship the bag. And so like any, what would you do if you were a 14-year-old boy in that circumstance? 14-year-old black boy. What did you say, Wendy? Yeah, well, what he did is he sat down and he cried, <laughs> and he cried, and he cried, and a stranger came up. Uh, this is the quote. Uh, uh, Howard burst into tears. An old man in blue denims and a bandana sitting on the steps, watching with interest, ambled over and said, if you're trying to get out of this godforsaken place to get an education and the only thing that stands in your way is money for that trunk, I'll pay the express. So he took out a raw hab money bag, counted out $3, and Howard was on his way. Years later, when the boy became a man and he wrote his life story with Head and Heart, the autobiography of Howard Thurman, he dedicated it to the stranger who restored my broken dream. Uh, So he was somebody who believed in intervention, and he believed in solace. Um, The idea of planting, and this was kind of crazy. I mean, if you know anything about Howard University... And if you're a black person in America in the 1940s, that might be, especially as a scholar, a place you would never leave. Um, But he had this vision of planting an interracial church. And that came in a Howard-sponsored trip uh, to, to meet Gandhi. And it's interesting, while he and his, his wife and a group of people uh, were waiting, Gandhi was very interested to see them and made efforts to kind of see this delegation because he felt like um, the people of India and, and black persons in America had a lot to say to each other. And in fact, as it was reported, Gandhi came up in, with a watch and said, we have three hours to talk, let's start talking now. Um, and so they did. And, and at the end of the conversation, uh, Thurman's wife, Sue, asked him, will you come to America and be the guest of the American Negro? Uh, and, and this is Gandhi's response. He said, uh, and you'll recognize the end of this because it's quoted very often. He said, uh, that is the only way I could come, but not unless I have some creative and healing thing to say to the people. Until I've found an answer to our own problem in India, I have no right to come to America and say anything. Then Howard Thurman asked, well, what is the greatest enemy that Jesus Christ has in India? And, of course, he's speaking to a person who's not a Christian. And do you know the response of Gandhi? Christianity, <laughs> which, is a, which is a powerful point. And, and that was the moment um, where Howard decided to both stay in the Christian tradition, but to do it in a different way. Uh, to live for the weak as well as the strong for all people, whatever their color, whatever their caste. Um, And as he said often, he would try to atone for the slave traffickers who called themselves Christians, for the man who wrote, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds, and made his money selling black serfs to the Christians in the New World, as well as for the nameless Englishman who named his slave vessel Jesus and for all the ones who came after. So, So Thurman made a really interesting decision. 
Uh, there he was with Gandhi, and he, he had this idea of whether he would maybe stay in the tradition or leave the tradition. And he decided to stay in the tradition, but to do it in a, a different way. And what was interesting was the fellowship church that he founded in uh, San Francisco was a merging of every denominational tradition. Now, again, that sounds crazy to us, but if you've read some literature in America in the 20s or 30s, it's a scandal when a Baptist marries a Methodist, right? Uh, but, but he also merged multiple faiths, uh, Hindus, Buddhist, uh, all of those were part of the fellowship church. And he preached to them uh, a, a notion of love that kind of transcended their different fellowships. And, and it was, in many ways, a truly beautiful, beautiful experience. Uh, you can get, um, here's a little bit of a, a quote about his church. There are two reactions to the fellowship church that members wait to hear from newcomers. One is this. This is the church I've been looking for my whole life. And the other is, hey, and I'm not really that religious. Thurman defines a creed, I love this, as a bronze plaque erected at the site of a battle signifying who won. So, <laughs> so creeds are written by the people who win and dogma as the rationalization of somebody else's personal religious experience. And it's so teaching his basic theme is reiterated. We're one at any level. And so this was in many ways this beautiful vision of Fellowship Church in, in San Francisco. And the question would be, given his kind of meditative, contemplative uh, faith that he preached to these persons, how were they impacted? And the impact was absolutely dramatic. One of the most dramatic things was that not only, and many people who were part of that church in the 40s and 50s have written and talked about their incredibly awkward encounters of inviting people of other faiths and other, other ethnicities and other colors into their home. Uh, many of them talked about, you know, I have never, ever had dinner with a white person, with a black person, with a Hindu, with a Quaker, with a Muslim, and Looking back on that dinner, we did everything wrong. But one of the things that they did is they began to do sorts of co-housing operations where people began to offer space to each other. This was an incredible scandal, even in San Francisco, to have people of different colors and different faiths living together. But that was one of the responses. Another one of their... Uh, their, um, their members of this community became the superintendent of public schools in Tucson. This is Robert D. Murrow. Uh, and he spearheaded the desegregation of schools in that town. And another became the dean of women at a large southern university, which allowed Negroes, as it's written, to mix with whites at one of Dr. Thurman's lectures, an unheard of gesture. Another prominent Negro, this is written uh, years ago in industrial relations, confessed that before he became a member of Fellowship Church, he suspected that everybody had a white face. So one of the things that happened in Thurman's church was this incredible encounter of people across difference with a hope for something that was greater than those differences. If you were to read um, uh, Jesus of the Disinherited, one of the most significant messages that you will get in this is that, uh, that there's something, he sees something in faith that stands beyond even the criminal Christian tradition that is associated with race in our culture. Let me read you a couple of quotes from him. The basic fact is that Christianity, as it was born in the mind of this Jewish teacher, he writes often about Jesus as a Jew and thinker, appears as a technique of survival 
for the oppressed. That is, it became, through the intervening years, a religion of the powerful and the dominant, used sometimes as an instrument of oppression, but it must not tempt us into believing that it was this way in the mind of Jesus. And he continues, The desperate opposition to Christianity rests in the fact that it seems, in the last analysis, to be a betrayal of the Negro into the hands of his enemies by focusing his attention upon heaven, forgiveness, love, and the like. It is true that this emphasis is germane to the religion of Jesus, but it has to be put into a context that will show its strength and vitality rather than rather than its weakness and failure. For years it has been part of my own quest so to understand the religion of Jesus that interest in this way of life could be developed and sustained by intelligent men and women who were at the same time deeply victimized by the Christian church's betrayal of his faith. So that was in many ways the message of Howard Thurman. And, and it was a message that did not lead people simply to a contemplative life, but to bold action. And one of the things, and this is the way Jesus and the disinherited ends, is he talks about what is the response of the disinherited as a, an exemplar to all of us, many of us who experience great privilege in our lives, uh, to our ability to love our enemies. And he writes about uh, three types of enemies. One is the personal enemy. And this is just somebody who is a part of our intimate friendship group, somebody that we know, somebody who has wronged us or we have wronged. Then he writes about a second type of enemy. He uses this category. The persons or a category of persons by their activity make impossible for the common and the weak to live without shame and humiliation. And biblically, he uses the analogy of the tax collectors, people who were the grasping hands of Roman authority, the hands of empire, the people who, who may not be committed to empire but make their living as a part of that. And, and the way that they make their living is by shame and humiliation. And then the third type of enemy is the type of enemy, and I bet you can think of a few people that might fit in this category, who uh, in his mind was exemplified by Rome itself, who, uh, whose life was framed in the very proposition of empire, very framed in the very idea that there's a way of doing life, a way of economy, a way of being, a way of living that is far greater than God's economy. And uh, as this text ends, he talks about how we might engage those persons, not only in prayer and in hope and in friendship and in reconciliation in a way that might transform our world. Um, to kind of end this tonight, we thought we would do something. I, I used thermal tonight is just a kind of a, a setup to someone else like Henry Nowen that we've talked about that really reminds us that the contemplative life is not one that separates us from action, but really drives us into incredible boldness. And in some ways is our source of hope, because I know in looking around the people in this room, many of you have worked incredibly hard for justice. I see teachers and social workers and all sorts of vocations here. And I know at times part of your life is being overwhelmed with the injustice that we face, the things that seem incredibly wrong that cannot 
be fixed. And to some degree, one of the simple moves in that face of that despair is this idea of prayer and hope and screaming and all of the things that we see in Psalm 63. Um, but one of the things I thought we would do today, and I think Molly and Laura are going to lead us in this now, is uh, we've done this before, is a loving kindness uh, meditation, one that is an experience that reminds us to pray and reflect for a love that may be beyond our own capacity in our mind. So what I've done is I've taken, uh, I think I used, I adapt uh, this from the readings of Stephen Smith, but I also have used the categories that that Howard Thurman uses in Jesus and the Disinherited. So Molly and Laura, why don't you guys come up and uh, lead us in this day. So tonight, um, we are going to engage in a loving-kindness meditation, and in this meditation, we will end by offering loving-kindness to our enemy, um, which I think is a really powerful act and one that we often fail at engaging. So loving-kindness has no conditions. It does not depend on whether one deserves it or not. It is not restricted to friends and family. It extends out from personal categories to include all living beings. There are no expectations of anything in return. This is the ideal, pure love, which everyone has in potential. We will begin with loving ourselves, for unless we have a measure of this unconditional love and acceptance for ourselves, it is difficult to extend it to others. Then we will include others who are special to us, and ultimately all living things. Gradually, both the visualization and the meditation phrases blend into the actual experience for the feeling of loving kindness. This is a meditation of care, concern, tenderness, loving kindness, friendship, a feeling of warmth for oneself and others. The practice is the softening of the mind and heart and opening to deeper and deeper levels of the feeling of kindness, of pure love. Loving kindness is without any desire to possess another. It is not a sentimental feeling of goodwill, not an obligation, but comes from a selfless place. It does not depend on relationships, on how the other person feels about us. The process is first one of softening, breaking down barriers that we feel inwardly toward ourselves, and then those that we feel toward others. Take a very comfortable posture. One of the aims in this meditation is to feel good, so make sure your posture is relaxed and comfortable. Begin to focus around the solar plexus your chest area, your heart center. Breathe in and breathe out from that area as if you're breathing from the heart center and as if all experience is happening from there. Anchor your mindfulness only on the sensations at your heart center. Breathing in and out from the heart center Begin by generating this kind feeling toward yourself. 
Feel any areas of mental blockage or numbness, self-judgment, self-hatred. Then drop beneath that to the place where we care for ourselves, where we want strength and health and safety for ourselves. Continuing to breathe in and out, use either these traditional phrases or ones you choose yourself. Say or think them several times. May I be free from inner and outer harm and danger. May I be safe and protected. May I be free of mental suffering or distress. May I be happy. May I be free of physical pain and suffering. May I be healthy and strong. May I be able to live in this world happily, peacefully, joyfully, with ease. Now, as you are ready, move to a person who most invites the feeling of pure, unconditional loving kindness. The love that does not depend on getting anything back. This person is usually someone we consider a mentor, a benefactor, an elder. It might be a parent, grandparent, teacher, someone toward whom it takes no effort to feel respect and reverence, someone who immediately elicits the feeling of care. Repeat the phrases for this person. May she be free from inner and outer harm and danger. May she be safe and protected. After feeling strong, unconditional love for the benefactor, move to a person you regard as a dear friend and repeat the phrases again, breathing in and out of your heart center. 
to a neutral person, someone for whom you feel neither strong like nor dislike. As you repeat the phrases, allow yourself to feel tenderness, loving care for their welfare. Now move to someone you have difficulty with. Hostile feelings, resentments. Repeat the phrases for this person. If you have difficulty doing this, you can say before the phrases, to the best of my ability, I wish that you would be. If you begin to feel an ill will towards this person, return to the benefactor and let the loving kindness arise again. Then return back to this person. Now move on to an agent, an agent of empire, an agent of humiliation and shame, one who by vocation, insensitivity, naivete, selfishness, or inability to imagine other circumstance embodies the wishes of empire or a human economy separate from God's economy. Repeat the phrases for this person If you have difficulty doing this, you can say before the phrases, to the best of my ability, I wish that you be. If you begin to feel ill will towards this person, return to the benefactor and let the loving kindness arise again. Then return to this person.
Now move to one entirely embedded in and committed to an empire, a human economy separate from God's economy, even if the language of God is deployed to defend this vision. Repeat the phrases for this person. If you have difficulty doing this, you can say before the phrases, to the best of my ability, I wish that you would be. If you begin to feel ill will towards this person, return to the benefactor and let the loving kindness arise again. And return again to this person. After the reflection on these difficult persons, radiate loving kindness out to all beings. Stay in touch with the ember of warm, tender loving kindness at the center of your being and begin to visualize a felt sense of all living beings. Slowly now, start to become aware of your surroundings. Notice your breath. Notice the center of yourself and the love that is radiating out. And open your eyes as you are able. now transition into our time of confession and absolution. Confession for when we often do not live into and embody loving kindness, but absolution in knowing that God's love is always present for us 
and is always beckoning us to remember the loving kindness from within and to offer that loving kindness to the world.
So we made a lot of moves tonight, did we not? We uh, moved from a text that uh, belied an intimacy with God that moves even beyond the circumstances of our life to a, um, a person whose lifelong impact and teachings 
were embedded in that concept of meditation that resulted in a in world change. And then we got a chance to do something about that. We got a chance to meditate on our own, at times our anger, our, our ability or our inability to love and, and build our own ability to love those who might be uh, wonderful and beautiful to love or those who are, are difficult to love. And I was really excited about doing that this week. And all that was wrapped into uh, Jeff's wonderfully soulful meditative music that we've known to for many years to love from him. So I was very excited Sunday just to come and do this with you. Uh, for me, so many times, uh, the relocation of my anger from persons and my own personal failure to uh, the, the parts of the world that we need to be angry with is, is deeply significant for me, as well as my ability to uh, build not only gratitude, but the ability to think kindly, love kindly, and pray kindly for all those who are around me. Those are things that I desperately need to do. So I was excited to do those things with you today. Uh, the last thing, obviously, that I'm excited to do with you is share the table. Uh, this is our opportunity every week for us to do, for us to build, for us to construct, for us to be the people of God in a deeply inclusive, deeply dependent, uh, deeply sustaining way. It's a chance for us to lean in. It's a meditative practice because it's a, a practice of, of the story of Christ, the deepest part of that uh, story of death and resurrection. But it's an opportunity for us to construct that vision in the world that we live in by, by including by sharing, by depending, by listening. And so I invite you now to the table in our uh, beloved rowdy fashion to talk to each other loudly, to embrace each other, to hear each other's stories, to remember what we heard last week, to uh, exhibit the loving kindness that we uh, structured in our meditation today, and to not only reflect on the story of Christ, but how that overwhelms our lives in in this moment and beyond. So I invite you now to the table, uh, reminding you again that we have an open table. So please uh, break bread and pour wine or juice for each other and say the body of Christ or the blood of Christ to each other and greet each other now at the table.